This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is possibly part of a country that is rich, dumb, and getting dumber. Okay. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you, mate? I'm good, mate. How are you? Which, which one are you, mate? Rich, dumb, or getting dumber? I don't know. Maybe all I'll of give, them. I'll give you first dibs, and I'll have the second one. Are we? <laughs> we are going to talk about that. That's a headline, a very evocative, very interesting headline in the AFR. Uh, that's a reasonably, as I said, provocative way to explain it. The basis was a Harvard Business School, I want to say. A uh, bit of research. Uh, maybe it was Harvard University, one of the two, same thing. Uh, basically saying Australia's got some issues. We'll talk about that. We will talk about the big V. Volatility is back with a vengeance in the markets. Is it time to break up the big four banks? One person certainly thinks so, although someone else says no, and we'll talk about, not just Doc and I, other people, real people, proper people with proper you know credentials and media savvy and all that kind of stuff. And we will dip into the full mailbag. What do you reckon, mate? Should we get going? Let's get going. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, oh, I start with the macro. Oh. I was, I was going to say, you interrupted me. Go on. Because you said, you know, people with credentials. Like, <laughs> I've got some credentials too. Like, but, you know, what not, about my credentials? We don't, we don't get quoted in the media. Actually, I did today. Oh, well, there we go. I finally, arri- I finally arrived. So, so, so therefore, you, you have credentials. My random tweet, well, a credential singular maybe. <laughs> I think we can't have, go plural just yet. Yeah, one uh, credence, <laughs> some credence. That almost sounds like you know we're into Harry Potter or something. I'm thinking credence Clearwater revival. Yeah, bit of music. Yeah, oh, I'll do that. Maybe we'll, our next episode should be a music special. Yeah, you're you, going to sing, right? And you play guitar. Okay, deal. <laughs> that sounds. <really> good. <laughs> don't unsubscribe. Don't unsubscribe. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right, <laughs> mate. That is about the most random tangent we've ever started with. Yeah, well, sometimes we, we do never that. start talking. It's a nice and bright sunny day. So. <laughs> it is actually Wednesday, too. For those of you who are listening to this on a Friday, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 9th of October. If something happens tomorrow or the day after, we're sorry we're not covering it. I'm going to be, hopefully, if the weather holds, out camping somewhere, out of mobile range with all likelihood, and certainly out of podcast range. So we're here on a Wednesday. As I said, if something goes wrong the next day or two, don't blame us. We'll be back to talk about it next week instead. Mates, Let's get to it somehow. I mentioned the big V as we started. Volatility is well and truly back. The last week, Wednesday, Thursday, the market was down, I want to say, 3% across those two days. Um, Overnight, Tuesday night Australian time, Wednesday morning, the US market had a recently ordinary night. Uh, All the big indices were down. So much going on, mate. Trade talks, economic growth, um, some issues with China geopolitically. What do you kind of make of what's going on the last couple of weeks market-wise? Is this you know, a sign of things to come? Is it business as usual? What's going on? Oh, well, I was going to say, you know, I'm happy some days and I'm happy I'm unhappy <laughs> some other days. <laughs> now, are you the sort of guy who's happy when the market's down because you get to buy things cheaper or you're unhappy because your portfolio is worthless? Well, <laughs> I hope my portfolio is not worthless. Oh, when, no, when the market's <laughs> because, down, though, that's what I mean. Because the wife would kick me out. <laughs> but <laughs> if, you have, if you have a bad day, do you wake up and go, well, it's, oh, bugger, I've had a bad day? Do you go, oh, at least the market's down, I can well, buy stuff cheaper? So, so on one of those days, you know, it's, again, very natural. It happens. Like, if you if I look at the portfolio, which I think looking at it, it's, it's always a starting point of the problem. <laughs> um, then, you know, like, on a, on a nice, green, positive day, you know, yeah. you see the account balance has gone up and you feel good about it and then mm-hmm. you know on a nice red <laughs> negative day um you know like let's say this morning 
uh, no, almost all markets are actually down. You, you you feel like you know, well, you know that virtual wealth <laughs> kind of has decreased, right? <laughs> um, and it, I think it has a bit of a psychological impact. I think yeah. um, it has to, right? It's it, hard not yeah, to. Yeah, it's only natural. And 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 like for most people, you know, the the pain of loss um, is is more than the you know the joy of gain. So mm. uh, so that does impact. I mean, but. But you do. I just you keep keep uh, focus and think about the fact that you know these are still the same companies. Nothing has really changed. Um, you know the geopolitical situation. It keeps doing its thing. Uh, such things happen all the time. And you know the markets overall. Over if you take it, mm. you know, zoom out, then they basically go up because again, as I like to say, you know it's a it's a way, it's a bet on human ingenuity and and that. Uh, human beings uh, as a group like to make progress and that's how you kind of participate in the progress is by basically buying stocks in companies mm. so um, yeah I mean it's it's well it's part of the so it makes you unhappy but not pessimistic is that is that a fair way to describe it yeah like I'm, I'm unhappy but I'm not pessimistic in the sense I'm not rushing to sell so I, the, the one thing that I do not do mm. is I don't rush to sell when everybody else wants to sell <laughs> that would be stupid right um, and there's a, there's a lesson there right in separating the emotion from the action like we all we all want to be sort of Dr. Spock or Mr. Spock I should say in, in Star Trek and not feel the emotions at all and be able to kind of take it all equanimity feel okay about ups and downs that's kind of unreasonable the next best thing we can do is say well I feel this way but my actions have to be filtered through another lens. And if we can do that, well, that maybe is the best we can hope for. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. Like, ba- basically, yeah, you have to separate what you do from wh- how you feel. And, I mean, you know, it's hard to control the feelings overall. I mean, it would be great if you actually can control the feelings, too. I mean, you should. I mean, yeah. if you can. And, and that's something that, you know, you can over time actually improve. Yeah. Like, I think over time it's improved a bit that's for me. That's a good me. point. That's a good point. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's worth it. Um, you know, there are tricks like don't open the portfolio, don't look at it, don't read the news <laughs> um, uh, and things like that. But yeah, you know, like most, I mean, most days you actually should have nothing to do because I mean, you know, um, you know, you don't have money every day to invest. So like, I mean, what do you really need to open your account for? Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. There has been no, I mean, if the companies have no earnings report and there's been no major news release, then I mean, there's no reason again to do something. Right. So in most days, you basically do nothing, and 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 if you're doing nothing, you don't have to open your brokerage account <laughs> to just feel miserable, right? Right. I mean, and so funny enough, I've, I've I've traveled a couple of times to the US for work in the last few years, and I've got to say, it really struck me each time how different it is to go to bed and then wake up, but go to bed before the market opens and wake up after the market closes. The whole idea that I couldn't do anything about it, even if I wanted to. The whole idea that I'm effectively only check, checking my portfolio at most. Once a day, because if I go to bed before the market opens, wake up after it's closed, I can kind of go and check the damage or the, or the hopefully the good news. But that's kind of, that's all I can do. And so it's a really, really strange feeling. If you can check your portfolio at half past 10, then half past 12, and maybe again at 12.31 because mm. you're worried, and then 12.32 because you're bored, and <clears throat> excuse me, and then, you know, 2 o'clock and 2.30 and 3 o'clock, and, you know, it, it can be a real emotional roller coaster, or just simply straight at emotional kind of, again, either, either it lifts your mood or, or it wrecks it. When, you, when you're literally forced to be outside the market, we all say to people, and I don't check my portfolio a lot when I'm in Australia, to be fair. I, don't, I, don't, I very rarely open it during the day, actually. Sometimes I do. Um, but, but the whole, just that, that change of geography, change of mindset, literally change of time zone has an amazing impact on my emotions. If you can just, as you say, not bother opening the portfolio at all, check it once after market close if you feel like it. But it's a real, it's a really big difference in terms of how you approach investing and how you feel about it. 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I have nothing really to add to that. I mean, I think that's that's all like you know very valid. I mean, I, I think yeah, you train your mind, look at your portfolio less less often, right, and right. don't equate. I think um, you know volatility to requirement of action, right? I mean, you know, if mm. if stuff becomes really yeah, cheap right. for some reason, then yes, you want to buy. That makes a lot of sense. But if you have no, like, you know, like, I don't have money every day to invest. So, mm-hmm. so therefore, what is the point of really opening the brokerage? And I've got to say that, I mean, that's the whole of, the whole of you can't do anything about it anyway. That is exactly the opposite of, of the brokerage ads you'll see around the place. Like, yeah, thankfully, we're not, we're not, we don't have any investment banking relationships. We don't have any stockbroker relationships. So we get to say whatever we want. You won't normally see that elsewhere. The whole, and I won't name them because I don't want a lawsuit, but the bloody take a position, you know, be smart. You can do this. You can beat the market, you know. Um, tra- trade and be successful. That kind of that, that whole sort of psychological, I don't know what you call it, manipulation, basically, that, that kind of tries to tell you, hey, you know, plays on your arrogance, plays on your sense of control, your sense of ego, um, your sense of kind of, you know, intellect. Hey, you're smart. You can do this. Go on, have a go. Do it, do it, do it. That's the, I mean, that's why they make their money, right? They make their money on trading. It's the only thing where, you know, well, not the only thing, one of the very few ways where they get paid not on whether you're successful or not, just simply on how much activity goes through your trading account. And that's one of those really important things to do. While everyone out there is saying, trade more, trade more, trade more. Bloody Comsec, I'm a customer. They give you eight, uh, you do eight, more than eight trades a month. You get access to some fancy research platform. Cost them nothing to provide. Do eight trades. Well, that's eight trades at 20, 30 bucks. Mm. I mean, you know, would you pay 200 bucks a month for a particular trading platform? Probably not. Mm. If it's free, because you make eight trades. Well, that's all, you know, those psychological tricks are really, really important. Mm. Comsec, I love you, don't sue me. Um, but you've really got to just, just think very carefully about what you're being incentivized to do and, and how the market, even, even the $60 million, $60 billion wiped off market headlines, mm. same kind of idea, right? It all compels us to feel like we should do something. And quite often the answer is do nothing. Yeah, $60 billion out of a $1.8 trillion market <laughs> cap. I, I think that's, that's the way to think about it, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's a nothing number. It's a nonsense number. It, it's real. It's daily volatility. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of which, Matt, so let's get back to the markets. Lots of, lots of conversation. Is there stuff to worry about US here at home globally, or is it literally just action and, and volatility? I mean, you know, we start by saying, well, just volatility, but some people are saying, I've, I've got tweets here that I've read, uh, not not directly to the mailbag, just in general, saying, you know, well, when the market crashes after 10 years of QE in the US and there's horrible, horrible times to come, I mean, there's a decent proportion of doom and gloomers out there who are saying that, you know, that somehow we've been inflating on a bubble of, of reserve bank or central bank goodness, and that goes away that we're going to hell in a handbasket. That's ever present, but should we start thinking about maybe this isn't just volatility, maybe this is something worse? Well, I mean, does anybody really know, right? I mean, it's it's one of those things where if I can, you know, if I predict that the market is going to crash sometime in the future, <laughs> I will definitely <laughs> be right, right. right, because sometime in the future it's going to yep, crash, yep. Uh, or it's going to, you know, have a pullback or whatever <laughs> uh, you want to call it. Yep. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, the, the the low interest rates are, like, seem very real, uh, and, and they're at, you know, various parts of the world, they're low for various different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. But they are low. Um, now, uh, if you if you think about it, can it continue being low? Well, look at Japan; it has been really low for a long <laughs> right, time. Right. It can be low for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, does that mean that you know maybe the stocks are not going to have? You know, it, in, in all likelihood, stocks might not have the kind of returns they've had over the past ten years. And and, and the reason for that could would not be that um, you know the, the the economies around the world suck. It's just that you know <laughs> um, when you have like a big correction, right. like you know it, it is. The other explanation is that stuff just became really cheap mm. and you had an opportunity to ride the cheap wave to it becoming <laughs> fairly valued, right? I mean, yep. so that's the other side of the argument. 
Um, with all that said, I mean, um, it's very difficult to predict like when a big, like, I mean, when a big correction will happen, if that's what, you know, and there's no reason to believe that if just because the, you know, you have a 10 year bull bull run doesn't mean that the bull run can't continue for another 10 years, another five years, another day, right? Again, nobody knows. Um, Are there things to worry about? Lots of things to worry about, but there are lots of things to worry about all the time. Um, there are things to worry about, about the trade wars, there are things to worry about anemic growth, there are things to worry about, you know, how tech is impacting mm. jobs. Um, but then at the same time, you could say, you know, there are other things you can be very happy about. You can say how tech and every other thing is making your quality <laughs> of life better, how, right, right. how you know, we might be going to the moon, to Mars, how we might be actually mining, you know, the outer universe, you know, all those things, you know, the, mm. uh, how we might have, uh, you know, internet from space and things like that, the, mm. you know, how we might solve, you know, rare disease uh, issues and so on. So there's mm-hmm. lots of, you know, there's pluses and minuses everywhere. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, so I don't see that it again. There's nothing obvious yeah. that, and if, again, if something was obvious, the market would have already crashed, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> or corrected or whatever. Yeah, Does yeah. that mean that the market would not pull back by 10% or maybe 20% if that happens? Mm. It's actually happened. Again, the 10, 20, 15%, 20% pullbacks, they do happen and they've happened. Mm. Uh, you know, over the past 10 years, they've happened a number of times. So, I guess that's the question, though, right? So for all that positivity, and just to just be devil's advocate for our listeners, that's all true. It doesn't mean that, say, in 1999, we had the massive tech crash, or in 2007, we had the market pullback. Those things are undoubtedly true, and I am in 100% agreement. In fact, not even indiscriminate at all about any of it. But to be devil's advocate for a second, what if all that's true, but the market is still overvalued? It, you know, how, how do you – why not just wait and see? Yeah, so so for the, the number one thing, I'll, okay, so first of all, I'll say, uh, I'll separate this into two parts. The dot-com stuff, mm. um, where you could put a dot-com in front of anything, pet.com, <laughs> and, it, and it all of a sudden became highly valuable. Many of these businesses had no revenue, like zero revenue, and they were on crazy multiples. Mm. Is that sort of thing happening today? In parts, there are certain parts of the market where a you know a certain business might have like you know less than a few million dollars of revenue, even a few hundred thousand dollars of revenue, and it's like at valued at gazillion times that. Mm. That I would question, mm. and you know there's a lot of you know momentum trading and whatnot going on there. You know the price is increasing, therefore somebody's piling in, and because somebody po- <laughs> you know piled in, your yeah. friend piled in, therefore my friend piled in, and therefore you know their friend piled in, their brother, sister, everybody piled in, right? So that 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 happens, but I'm not sure. I mean that sort of stuff always happens. Is the degree of prevalence of that increased? Uh, maybe I don't know. Mm. Um, by and large, though. W- some parts of the market are expensive, some are not. Um, yeah, like, I mean, no, I would say this. I would say that nothing looks obviously cheap. Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there are no opportunities, right? And then the other, I think mm. the other thing to consider is often we, you know, we, we think about, oh, the long-term average of the market is this. Mm. What we, I think, don't factor in that long-term average. Well, the long-term average was that with the interest rates being at a certain level. <laughs> and I think that has a big impact on how you sort of think about where money should go and how you should value things, Mm-mm. right? So that I think the long-term average was with, you know, interest rate at 5% or 6% average versus mm. now interest rate being like, what, it's, it's in 0.75 in Australia, it's probably going to zero, <laughs> right? So um, how, do you, how do you, you know, you have to factor that in too. So mm. I think... Uh, I think there's that that bit. So overall, like, I mean, you know, I'm not f- saying that um, there are like, you know, 
screaming bargains out there, but I think there are opportunities and pockets of opportunities and there's pockets of overvaluation and things like that. And things are always so high, right? No matter how high you think they already are, it's generally speaking historically been a dangerous thing to try and time markets. Trying to predict downturns or slowdowns is just incredibly, incredibly difficult. Occasionally you get it right. You only said to me this morning that there's a whole group of people who are, and I won't name any of them to save you from getting a lawsuit, uh, who, who can be, you know, rightly put in that pantheon of people who've been right once and have built, you know, kind of entire careers out of it yeah. um, with, without needing to be right multiple times and genuinely build a proper track record. Yeah. We kind of lionize those people and forget that over time the markets still go up 10% a year, more or less. Um, as you say, depends on where you start from, but broadly speaking, it's a very dangerous thing to start from assuming things are going to go badly because traditionally that's been a, a losing bet. Yeah. Let's move on, mate. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Speaking about losing bets, as I was, he says, trying to segue nicely from market volatility through to banking stocks. Uh, mate, we don't talk about that was the banks. Not a, that was not a great segue. Wasn't it? No. What should I go with? Uh, just let's go straight to it. Oh, straight to it. Right. Yeah. We'll let it this be out later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we won't. We never do. Uh, mate, so the big four banks are, mm. are in the news, as they always are. Um, most recently, they're paying thousands of dollars out in remediation for people they, can I say ripped off? I probably can because they didn't name a single individual bank, so they'll struggle to sue me. Um, and they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, making good on some of the things they've done wrong as a result of the Royal Commission, among other things. Uh, the interesting topic, though, is... Whether or not they are too big, not to fail, not to succeed, but too big to be a responsible part of our economy. There was an article in the AFR only today arguing for the big four banks to actually be broken up. Now, the, 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 the term that they use in economic circles is economic rent, not rent as in paying for a property, but the amount of money you can make in profit above what you otherwise should be able to earn because of some structural benefits you're getting from a particular circumstance or economy. Now, that's where the term rent-seeking comes from, if you've read that in the papers. And basically, the idea is if you're getting economic rent, then it's the the circumstance or the, the result of a market that's not as competitive as it should be. And this particular banker, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Joseph Healy, who was ex-NAB and ex-ANZ, is saying, down, is saying they should be broken up all the big four banks, because they simply have too much market power and are making too much money. Now, that's on one side of the article. On the other side of the, of the coin, on the same day in the AFR, you can't accuse them of not being balanced. An article from, or quoting Jeff Wilson from Wilson Asset Management, saying the banks are actually okay and frankly shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't make any less money because strong banking sector, strong profitable banks that are kind of structurally sound and not economically risky are actually really important for our economy. So two different sides of the same coin, I don't own any bank stocks. You don't own any bank stocks. But what do we do, mate? Do we break them up because they're too big? Or do we say, well, they might make a lot of money, but that's kind of a, a worthwhile cost, if you like, a worthwhile expense for our economy, if it means we're more structurally sound than they otherwise would be? Mate, that's a hard one. I mean, it's a hard that's one. That's why I asked you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I only do the easy ones, mate. You get the hard ones. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a hard one because, largely because, um, I think I agree with both sides. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm actually of the of. Maybe I lean more towards the side that you know you actually shouldn't break up the banks because um, can I agree with the fact that a good banking sector is important for the economy? Um, strong mm. banking sector, you know, it, it gives confidence to the economy. You know, we're a relatively small economy in terms of you know number of people and so on and so forth, and you know that it makes sense. We have only four sort of big banks. 
relative to our population, relative to you know uh, uh, the total economy output, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean the the situation could be that you'd have you know, maybe you could have double those numbers or triple those number mm, of banks, mm. and then maybe there's more competition. But you know, would those banks? I mean, the banks. Um, be healthy enough, you know, which we have a lot of, um, um, you know, banks that are basically on the edge, making less money. Um, right. And, and so on. I mean, I don't know. I, I rather- You kind of want to be careful what you wish for, right? There's a, I'm oh, sorry, I'm going to half answer your question. Is it Nassim Taleb who wrote Anti-Fragile? Yeah. So the idea basically of Anti-Fragile is that you want to be careful that you're not so efficient, so kind of, um, so lean. It's a bit like athletes, right? Athletes yeah. get crook really regularly. Yes, because they don't, you know, have the same dietary and exercise habits of me. To be fair, and uh, and I get sick a lot less because I'm just not that finely, believe it or not, I'm not that finely tuned athlete who is is so primed to do really, really well. It ends up kind of being fragile because the simply the system is so engineered. There's not a lot of leeway, and that's great when it works. You set a, you set a marathon world record, and you're a genius. But you get sick and break down and do a knee or do an ankle or, or you know, somehow just get gently, you get the flu more often because you know, your body's just less able to resist that stuff. You kind of want to be careful what you wish for. Yeah, we all want to win a marathon, but at, a, at an economic level, do we want to risk the, the gold medal on the chance that actually the whole thing might come massively a cropper? Yeah, I, I think the other thing that I think people miss, I guess, um, I, I, it almost seems like I'm defending the banks, which, <laughs> which sounds funny. Right, it's the first time for everything. Yeah, it's the first time. I mean, the thing <laughs> is that the, you know, the bank, our banks are actually like on a on typical profitability measures, really profitable, right? You know, returns on equity, for example, are pretty high, on when you compare them to global standards and. And and that kind of makes sense because, you know, most of the things, the profits are pulled down because there's a lot of competition and often competition comes from overseas and, and things like that, right? A, banking being regulated mm-hmm. and B, um, you know, it's a small market. It's not worthwhile mm. for other people to jump into a highly regulated market, which is in a way reduces competition, right? I mean, highly regulated markets, there are going to be fewer competitors because, you know, why do I want to come into a market which is small? It's not going to add lots of value to, right. you know, an external competitor, right? right, right, right. Uh, um, so I think for all of those reasons, I think, you know, it's, it's I think it in, in a way it might be odd to expect more competition than actually what mm. we have. And, you know, maybe... Maybe it's like a bit of an oligopoly going on, or you know, or maybe cartel. Cartel might be the oh, wrong word. <laughs> you, you can make that claim. I'm not going to. I'm there. not making any claims here <laughs> about cartels. But but, but but yeah. But I mean, overall, I think. Yeah. Uh, overall, I think a good banking sector is is useful. It's it's good. You know, should the banks pass on more of the rate cuts? Maybe. Uh, but again, it's one of those mm. things. You know, do you want them to pass all the rate cuts and be very fragile, right? <laughs> you know, exactly. Right. It, it's, right. It's the balancing act, and you know they. Need to, and I, th- I think the banks here do a good job of trying to balance the various stakeholders, right? Mm. I mean, if they, you know, if they didn't pass on the as much as they potentially could, then you know mm. there are you know non-bank lenders people would go to and people are going to. So, mm. so anyways, well, I, that's I, kind I, of the irony, right? Like in the last financial crisis, it was the non-bank lenders, the Wizards, the Rams, yeah, that actually went to the wall. Um, bank West got sold to Commonwealth Bank. I mean, at some point. We're kind of if we've been a if we've been a country full of lean disruptors rather than kind of big profitable incumbents, the GFC might have gone meaningfully differently in Australia. Exactly, exactly. I think, and, and yeah, and I think yeah, many yeah. So, anyways, I think for you know, I think because of the uh, there's some interesting things about the size of the economy, right? And that's why we have uh, in certain 
industries, we have like, you know, maybe one or two or three or four major players. And if you look at even supermarkets, right, why don't we have a lot more competition in, for example, groceries, right? Right. Uh, again, it's the, the structure uh, of the economy and the size, I think, matters here. So speaking, uh, that was the other thing I wanted to ask you about, actually. You've, you've beautifully done a seg for me, which I could have taken off, but instead of that, I'm going to talk about the seg instead of just going there because we're not that good and I'm not that professional. Um there is a tendency in economics generally, in economies generally, in industry, society, pick whatever term you want, for sectors, categories, industries to kind of become oligopolies, monopolies over time. There's there's four major airlines in the US. In the past, there would have been 20. There's two here in Australia. We've got two supermarket chains where in the past there was much, much more competition. Uh, there's two or three telcos. I mean, admittedly, we're a small economy, but... All, all around the world, the bigger getting bigger and the smaller getting kind of squeezed out or taken over or shut down, at some point there is something kind of structurally that needs to be addressed by regulators at some point, right? Just just as, as a concept, how far do you go before there's two of everything, you know, a bit like Noah's Ark, there's, you know, any industry there's going to be two big guys. At some point that gets to the point of being anti-competitive and does start to harm our economic well-being, our standard of living, doesn't it? Well, I'm not too sure. Like, so, so I think like let's use airlines, and you know, I don't know much about the U.S. airlines. So I'm going to make up some stuff here. Um, <laughs> Again, that's my that's my job, not yours. Yeah, as I'm wanting to do. <laughs> uh, but let's say there were 20, 20 there. Let's say competing. Yeah. Really, there was not enough money for those twenty to be made, right? All oh, right, exactly. And, and so yes. they, they yeah. got, you know, the 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 poorly run ones got squeezed. Yes. Now, you and could, the consumer's the winner, though. That is the other thing, right? So we all we all flew for cheap. Yeah, we, we all we feel, and we're still flying for cheap, right? I yeah. mean, the thing yeah. is that if the four that exist, you know, jack up profits enough yeah. that there is room. I mean, in capitalism, the moment there is enough profits to be made, somebody's <laughs> going to try to jump in. Yep. So I think as long as that lever is there, and that might not happen in highly regulated areas because it's harder. Right. Or where there's high barriers to entry, right? A lot of capital required or, or something kind of specific. I, I can't imagine starting a telco tomorrow. Like, it'd be pretty yeah. hard to to kind of, for you and I to get together and raise a few bucks and put some 5G towers up around the country. Yeah, I, I think so. Those are hard. Like, you know, so the, and that, and, and I think, you know, uh, organizations like, you know, or, or bodies like ACCCA, for example, do a good job there trying to make sure that there's enough competition and you know don't have enough mergers and acquisitions and or whatnot happening to sort of safeguard the consumer's interest right um and, and i'm not making a position taking a position here about yeah. or, or the ongoing discussion but i'm just saying that there is an active a triple c that yeah. looks into this um the same story might be true you know maybe for the size of australia two airlines are more than enough and maybe there's well there's uh there's rex right um yeah right <laughs> for uh, it's a regional outfit so so we have that mm. and you know, maybe that's enough. And then, and if you think about it, this, if from an airline point of view, even, mm. and, and I'm digressing, right? There's international competition as well, right? So we, we, when you think there are two airlines for domestic travel, but there are hundreds and hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of airlines when you want yeah. to fly internationally, yeah, yeah. right? And and there's a lot of competitions. In some cases, the, the airlines are subsidized by government because the government considers the airlines mm. as a way to, you know, support tourism, right? So there's, there's a whole host of other things. So, um, yeah, I, I, I believe that I think, you know, Ultimately, the profit motive is there, yeah. and when they, when, when I think there's enough profits being made, some other third party would try to come in, you know. And mm -hmm. somebody's margin is basically, you know, somebody else's opportunity, and I think that's <laughs> always true. Yeah, um, you've said before, uh, just to kind of tease that a little bit more, and I hope I'm not giving anything away here, but I'm pretty sure you've said it publicly. You expect the kind of next range of—I'll uh, probably paraphrase you here badly, so correct me—the next lot of innovations are going to come not from the, the small guys in the garages, but from the big guys who are already 
pretty dominant. I think if I'm if I'm not mis misquoting you, at some point that seems to me like an acceptance, uh, even you know, um, not so explicitly but implicitly that these markets are kind of too hard now or too big or too complex or too something for little guys to have much of a chance of innovating meaningfully. Am I am I drawing too long a bow here? Am I misquoting you or have I got it roughly well, right? you know, somewhat about that. I mean, and the thing is, what I well, maybe the best way to think about it, that in certain mm-hmm. areas, it, the amount of money, dollars that you need for R&D, the skill set, the type of people that you need to hire. So basically, as, as things become more complex, right, it becomes harder to do that complexity innovation in the garage yes and yeah. and therefore the big technology firms or big firms have an advantage there because they can pour you know their massive profits into massive r&ds yeah which basically disadvantages other people does that mean that other people are not going to be doing stuff they will be doing stuff but some in certain areas it's just going to be harder um but then i mean the flip side is that there's not just one mm. big company mm-hmm. like there are, there are many big companies which are very big you know it's a subjective measure right but i mean there, there are Lots of companies that are generating tens right, of right, billions right. dollars of profit, yeah, yeah. right? And they can all invest in, in the, you know, and, and we see that. Like, you know, today, if you think about voice computing wars, there is like, you know, Amazon has something, mm-hmm. Microsoft has mm-hmm. got something, Google has got something, Apple has got something. It's not that one company owns that field. Mm-hmm. There's enough competition. Yeah, right? yeah. But it's all coming from the existing group or people who can kind of grow from large to very large or can move sideways a little bit rather than maybe the garage innovation we're used to. Yeah, yeah. I think I think a lot of complex areas are basically out of bounds for smaller people because it's just the amount of investment required to mm, do things mm, is mm. just harder. All right, mate. I'm going to be controversial. All right. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Australia is rich, dumb, and getting dumber. So say the boffins at Harvard. I was in the AFR yesterday, and the this this is a great... I, I love this. Um, so Aaron Patrick was the journo from the AFR who wrote this. He says, Bangladesh, Cuba, Iran, Mali, and Turkmenistan share an unexpected connection to Australia. And it isn't membership of a tourist destination hotlist. All are among the economies that are so lucky in complexity and have such limited natural opportunities to develop new products that Harvard University recommends they adopt industrial policy straight out of the post-colonial developing world. The, quotes strategic bets approach. That's a, <laughs> that's a very, very good uh, opening couple of paragraphs. There's also an, an accompanying graph, and it's ranking of economic complexity. Number one is Japan. Number 12 is the US. I won't ask you where Australia ranks because I know you've seen it. Australia ranks under Senegal and above Pakistan at number 93. Now, I I had a a slight dig at that on Twitter. But before I get to that, you're less critical of this than I am. Basically, what it's saying is our economy is simply way, way too concentrated. It doesn't have enough complexity, enough kind of different ranges of, of industries and opportunities. And I, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here because I'm not a, a Harvard academic. But broadly speaking, there's, there's you know, some risk, some concern that we simply don't have enough complexity in our economy and we should be doing something, making some strategic bets as a, as a country to try and broaden out our economic base. Yeah, so, I mean, the... The headline is uh, is by design. It's a brilliant headline in terms it's of getting good, people <laughs> getting people to click, right? Yeah, Which is it worked. Uh, yeah, um, I actually don't disagree at all with the 
Uh, and I, this might sound, I don't want to make it sound bad, but I, I want to clarify one thing. <laughs> yep. What this is measuring is exactly what they've said. It's measuring complexity right. in the economy or in a way it's measuring how advanced your economy is from an export point of view. Yes. Now let me give some stats here. It says the eighth richest nation in the study, i.e. Australia, has the export profile of Angola. About 70% of products sold to foreign buyers are minerals and energy. If we add in food, alcohol, wool, tourism, and metal, the figure rises to 99%. That's not exactly a broad range of exports. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's what it is. So it's not talking about human development index. We rank very highly there. It's not talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, uh, quality of life index. It's not standard of living. Right. Right. But I think what this is saying is that Australia's hinged its uh, bandwagon. Yes. On digging the ground uh-huh. and you know uh, rearing the cows, <laughs> basically from the sheep's back to the to the mining truck's right. bed, I think. Yeah, and, and in a way, I've, and I've said this many times, and I'm saying that what I basically I think this is basically saying that we are not an innovation economy right. in any shape and form, which is dangerous, <laughs> because if a rich country like Australia is not an innovation economy, then we don't have a problem today. Even right. maybe in 50 years, we don't have a problem. Right, but it doesn't. You know, over you know multiple decades, there is very good reason to believe that this is going to result in overall in fifty years, maybe in hundred years, a decay in quality of life from very high quality life to maybe right. slightly high, less high, and so on and so forth. That's that's number one. I think the other other bigger, uh, I, I guess here's the other thing, right? If most of your money is made by digging the ground, you have really, you're basically a price taker, right? You're taking, you're a price taker for most of the stuff that's being sold. Absolutely. Like, you know, 14.2% is coal, which is basically on the way out. I don't know, it's 14.5%, 12.2% is like petroleum. And we're on record as not loving price taking companies. So as an economy, we should be similarly critical of, of price an economy take- that's built basically where you don't have a say over how much price you can get for your products. And you just got to hope like hell that prices stay high. Otherwise, it can meaningfully impact your economic activity. Yeah, but but uh, like you know, let me paint a picture here, right? So a lot of these things that we are sending out are available in places like Democratic Republic of Congo. The problem is it's hard to dig from there because there's like you know there's chaos there. But you know, if for example, a lot of Africa all of a sudden became less chaotic, yeah, we'd have a problem. We'd have like a huge <laughs> right, problem, right? Right? Like because it'll be cheaper to dig in Congo than mm-hmm. to dig here. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, I think what that is saying, that yeah. is effectively, you know, what are we do, doing about that? ICT is 4% of our economy. That's a problem. Yep. Now, it's interesting that, I mean, to some degree, we just talked about fragility earlier. And that's, this is kind of the, this is kind of the exact definition of that, right? If our, if our very few things that we do well and do profitably and do successfully and do reasonably dominantly, if they continue, we're sweet as a nut. You know, there, there is a story that in 50 years time, Australia is the most prosperous country on earth per head of population because we have so much in the way of raw materials, minerals, tourism, etc. And we can charge a good price for those because scarcity or, some, or scale or something else lets us make money. There, there is one version of the future where Australia is among, if not at the top of, standards of living per capita. On the other hand, as you say, there's, there's a scenario where either our minerals aren't required, i.e. coal, or it can be dug up cheaper elsewhere or simply geopolitics changes things and we could be meaningfully plunged down those economic well-being measures from exactly that kind of kind of scenario right 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you know, like Jeff Bezos is working on um, basically doing mining in the space, right? So when mining mm-hmm. in the space becomes, you know, is it twenty years? I don't know. Is it in fifteen <laughs> years? I don't know. Is it in ten years? I don't know, yeah. right? But if that happens. Maybe people will be getting iron ore from the space and not from Australia, and then we've got a problem. So I think all all this is basically saying, I mean, I'm you know, for all the, the headline is crazy because it doesn't talk about all the other things, mm-hmm. but it, it does point to a problem, and you know, right. it's something that people should consider. It's a risk, right? Now, Matt, I'm going to ask you a question I've said before, and I I struggle with this. I was going to tweet about this actually earlier today, so it's great you mentioned it. You talk about ICT, so information communications technology. How did I go? Very good. Good ICT. Um, Medical, we do okay with, I guess. We've got cochlear, resmed, CSL. We probably punch above our weight, at least on an economic scale in medical technology. Would that be fair? Nanosonics, I suppose we could throw into that mix. Yeah, we do. We do actually reasonably well, better to some others. But you know, it doesn't show up in this <laughs> in this number actually, <laughs> which is interesting because it. Here's the other thing to remember, right? I mean, CSL, if it's doing mm. bulk of its bulk bulk of its. Um, business abroad, it wouldn't actually show up here. Right. So there's a big difference between what generates jobs and what generates kind of wealth or profits, right? So yeah. most CSL's profits are owned overseas, which is wonderful if you're a shareholder, probably good for the corporate, you know, government coffers, the corporate tax coffers probably are nicely swelled by CSL's profitability. They're all good things. Doesn't do a lot for jobs. And maybe that's part of the a question we need to answer. I, I'm you're you're a you're a you're a you're a big bet R and D kind of guy. I I kind of conceptually agree with you, but I have to say, if you made me treasurer tomorrow, frankly, we'd all leave the country. But let's assume that let's assume people stayed around. And someone said, the, the prime minister said to me, Man, "How should we? How much should we spend on on R and D?" I don't know how I could reasonably pick a number to say, "Well, this might you know, if we halved it or doubled it." Could I could I draw a graph and say, "Well, if we double it or halve it, this is the kind of per dollar impact of the change." I, I don't know how, and it, that, that's kind of the point of this this research, right? Was that strategic bets idea was. They're basically saying the government should pick some stuff and invest behind it and try and be, in theory, the best in the world or at least a, a decent exporter in that space. If, if I'm treasurer tomorrow and I say, Doc, I want you to be my treasury advisor on R&D and I want you to kind of give me a sense of how much – how can I go about – not even how much in dollars because it's a silly question, but how do I go about working out how much I should spend on R&D? How, how, how do you kind of – Frame that up if you're if you're in charge of that. Well, so so I, I think there's a place to look at, and that's the place to look at is China. So basically, if you look at the ranking of China on that graph mm. in 2007 versus now, you'll see that has moved up significantly, right? Right, right. And there's a very simple way. I think this is actually, if I have to point to one place, which you know, one region mm. where Australia actually does poorly, and it has historically been the case, is the Australia's investment in the education sector is actually poor. Oh man, it drives me nuts. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 so what, you don't have to give tax, actually, you know, giving tax breaks, R&D tax breaks is just one part of it. You know, that mm. uh, that's basically money moving from one hand to the other <laughs> hand. And, you know, right. so, you, know you should, you, there's no reason to not have basically one of the world's best education sectors in, mm. in, in this country, mm. largely because you should be able to get some of the best academics to come here. Right, if they're not here. On the basis of what? How much we pay them? The lifestyle we offer them? How, how well, do you do well, that? I mean, we, we pay really well. We have a right. really good lifestyle here. <laughs> Again, so those are really attractive qualities. Okay. Right? So maybe you do it in partnership. But, you know, like I, I point to China, right? What China did is China built basically dual, educa- dual degree programs with top American schools and top other schools in the world. Okay. And basically trained a whole bunch of people that way. Got them to come back. And and then basically created an ecosystem. Those people in in turn then went and created companies. I'm not saying don't right. fund companies. You don't have to fund companies. Right. Okay. Do not have to fund you know directly any um, 
innovation. You basically fund the education sector, mm. right? Mm. Uh, you know, help the education sector uh, grow. And, and the education sector will figure out, you know, some, you know, ultimately the output from the education sector will... Find, no, this is not show up immediately. This yeah, of will course, take, of course. you know, a decade, maybe two decades, mm, right? Mm. But you've got to make the start, right? And right now... No point looking back in 20 years' time and saying, gee, we should have started in 2019, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Instead of, and, 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 and instead of trying, to, you know... I mean, the education sector is a revenue generator here because we have students coming here. But I think it's not... I think... Uh, I think the focus on, you know, you'd, you'd increase, for example, the grants that you give out, mm. right, in the research sector. But okay. before that, you would, uh, you would you'd actually try to, you know, make, again, the, the universities competitive and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are ways to do it. You basically, uh, you know, at, at a high level, you'd fund mm. the, the, that sector, right, which would in turn create jobs and so on. So it's, not, it's, an, it's a net positive uh, for the economy in that sense. So you'd not take money away from anything, right? Mm. And, and it has, in, in in a way, no direct bearing on the exports <laughs> because the exports will still happen because the exports are happening because people, there's demand for those resources. Right, right, right. right, right. Interesting. I'd also, personally, I think I've said this before, I'd, I'd massively upweight uh, the, the focus on tourism. I think there's one thing, that, you know, we can we can be outcompeted on most things around the world. You know, other people can make medical devices, other people can do ICT research, other people can create companies. You can't create an Uluru or a Great Barrier Reef or a Sydney Harbour or, uh, you know, a, a, a New South Wales Outback um, a Margaret River. Have I got all the states yet? Uh, probably almost all of them. Um, you know, you that, forgot, that's sort of, you, did you forget Tasmania? Oh, Tasmania, Tasmania yeah. wines. There you go. Yeah. I'm going to Tasmania in July, in January, hopefully. But it's already 12.7 percent of the export. In the oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. So it's but, but in terms of like the stuff that you can't, like we can't be outcompeted on tourism, right? Yeah, we can be outcompeted on prices, but there's no other rule of rubing stuff. Like it, just, it strikes me that that's something that kind of is so intrinsically and unquestionably Australian. Not not instead of, but but as well as it just strikes me as one thing you can't. You know, someone else can make cheaper widgets. Someone else can invent new stuff. Like, there's no there's no competitive advantage in that when you've got literally stuff on the ground, in the ground, under the ground, <laughs> around, you know, under the water. Um, I just, I just, I don't understand why we're not doubling down on the stuff that that but is think, genuinely unique. But I think we do really well on that. Like, I mean, you know, having traveled different parts of the world, I think we do really well in terms of mm. you know our our facilities are really great. Mm. Um, you know, if you want you want to go to the water, you have you know good safety. You, you know, mm. as as a uh, in terms of rules, regulations, safety, opportunity, things to see, things to do in mm, terms of, mm. you know, could we have slightly better roads maybe? But, you know, uh, I think tourism is one thing we do really well. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't feel, okay, I, I don't saying. I don't find tourism to be lacking. So the incremental investment's not best spent there, you reckon? Well, I would not decrease, well. I would not decrease anything that we do. Right. But I think we are, like, I mean, very high. Like, I mean, you know, you go to places, there is, you know, you go to places, there's, you know, Facilities everywhere. There's a cough cafe to you know, uh, you know, an information center. Right, I, I don't right, know what right. else you would do. You know what I do, mate. If I, so I was, I've already been treasurer this episode. I'm going to be tourism minister as well. Mm. You know, I, I reckon the biggest bang for buck. If I could put another couple of dollars in tourism, it would be just clearing up the lines at the airport when you arrive and when you leave. Like you know how you know how annoying customs is right around the world. It's right? not customs; it's quarantine. But can you imagine? But that, that all that stuff. Like, can you imagine if you were if you were? It wouldn't cost us much. Right? It costs mm. us tens of millions of dollars max, right? And so economically, that's that's peanuts. Imagine imagine that if you went to let's pick a country, England. You turn to England, you arrive at the airport, you walk off the plane, and you spend literally five minutes going from the plane to the taxi. Oh, really? Right? You haven't been? Have you been lately there? It's terrible. Yeah, like it, it takes you. Right. So imagine imagine how you would rave. Imagine you would come back from that and go, you guys have got to go to Heathrow. It was amazing. I had such a great... Your very first experience with England is like, 
oh my God, this is amazing. Mm. That sets up your entire holiday. But, but you know what I'll say Tell me. to that? Anybody who goes to Sydney and then goes to Heathrow, you know, say, <laughs> I'm going to go to Sydney again and again and again. Because it, it takes, like, I mean, you know, I don't, you know, our, okay, so our airport <laughs> is not like the most, Sydney airport is not like the most splashy, but it's incredibly efficient. Like, oh, no, uh, it's no. incredibly efficient. We've got all these machines. You can actually, you know, swipe your passport in the machine. Cool, huh? Uh, I love coming back into Sydney from any other airport because I know it's going to be very quick, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. So I, you know, the only thing uh, I've I've always the only only uh, issue I've found is yep. like after a long flight, which every flight is long here, right? Like <laughs> exactly. if you're coming internationally, every you flight can't do is a short long. flight, right? There's no short flight oh, un- unless you're going to New Zealand or something. But uh, you know, that's the shortest. Yeah. Well. It's the quarantine line, but you yes. know, again, that's there for reasons. I don't know what you could do. You can maybe put like more lines. That's what I do. There. I triple staff. I'd, anyway, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe you're right. I just reckon if, if first impressions count, we all know they do. Mm. If you if you arrive in Sydney, you go, man, that was amazing. You're already in such a good mood when you get through the airport. The rest of the trip's probably going to be a good one. Rather than starting off with like a, I had to wait in the quarantine line for 25 minutes. It was kind of crappy. I need to go to the toilet. I couldn't use my phone. And it's just, I, I'm yet to find it. one tourist yeah. who I know. Who has hated coming to you know whose experience has been bad? I mean, what okay. I'm saying is that our experience is actually pretty. Is there is there is there an opportunity to make it better? Maybe, but we're already we're already in terms of like the big metropolis airport. Like I don't you know like yeah, pick pick LAX. Oh man, don't pick LAX. Right, it's literally the worst airport in the world. Like you know when you have to actually change your terminal, you God, don't LA's know. <laughs> You're like nobody knows where to go. <laughs> when I fly to the US, mate, because we go to the East Coast more often than not to to, to world headquarters of Full HQ. I always fly in via Dallas, and it is just—it it is such a worthwhile difference. Yeah, yeah. and they've, and they've got that automatic train thing that helps. Oh, they do too. Yeah, yeah. they do. Yeah, we're massively we're massively tangent. Let's go. Motley Fool Money, financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. Mailbag time, and we had a question from Nam. Nam says. Hi, Scott and Doc. I below. He says to me, I believe you're a holder of Webjet shares. Would love to hear your thoughts on the recent weakness and Webjet's long-term potential. Now, I am a holder of Webjet shares, so uh, Nam's correctly picked me up there. But rather than me answering, Doc, I want to hear your thoughts first up. Because, <laughs> you know, again, it's a hard question. Um, I'm, I'm biased, right, because I own the shares. So what do you think of Webjet's recent weakness and long-term potential? So, you, you, you know, Nam must, Nam probably missed uh, the episode where I just got worked up about Webjet. <laughs> so, I'm just giving so, you another chance, mate. That's all. So, okay. So, Webjet is is a hard one to understand. They actually had really mm. good results. Mm-hmm. Um, the valuation looks really attractive. And the shares are basically down. Yeah. Um, and you were worked up because during earnings season, lots of crappy stuff went up. Yeah. Webjet had some good results, probably even very good. I think it's fair to say. Oh, I didn't own them then, by the way, so I'm claiming no credit. And the shares went down, and you were uh, a little, a little nonplussed. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I'm still nonplussed <laughs> in the sense that okay, so so the the one cloud that's there is is the uh, Thomas Cook. Uh, so Thomas Cook. Mm-hmm. So just to clarify here, I'm, I'm going to get a little uh, into the weeds here. So Webjet has a business which is basically a B two B business yes. where they basically provide uh, services. Essentially, not really services, but they're basically buying certain number of, you know, I got beds and things mm-hmm. like that from other or, or other people. So think about a whatif.com or a lastminute.com.au. These guys provide a service that kind of enables that back end to work, mostly in Europe and the Middle East. Yeah, but it's also like, you know, you it's like getting like, you know, so there's the their beds business, yes. right? Yeah, so the web beds. beds. Yep. Yeah, web beds. So it's basically like, you know, you could buy bulk in bulk from certain hotels or some hotel chains, a bunch of like, for example, rooms, yep. right? Yep. And then you sell them. 
uh, to uh, somebody else. Mm -hmm. So now the Thomas Cook um, uh, bankruptcy is going to impact their numbers. Yes, right. Now Thomas Cook is not. So we kind of know Thomas Cook the name. In the UK, it is so dramatically huge. They even have their own, or they had their own airplanes. This was a yeah. very, very large tourism business: airplanes, hotels, bookings, travel agent. Like this really vertically integrated kind of behemoth yeah. that. Went literally stone mothless broke. Yeah, like they basically have charter aircrafts and things like that. That you know, they're, they're basically they're, they're like a holiday, like like people like they're a holiday. It's got it's got company. like a it's got like a cruise liner, but with an air with an with airplane an instead, airline. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like yeah, it's like Carnival Cruise, but yeah. for the planes. Yeah. Um. So they went broke, and they're only actually one of the <laughs> oldest, or probably the oldest British um, British um, travel mm. company. Mm. Uh, that went broke. Mm. So Webjet, uh, Webjet had a business with them. They're, that's going to be impaired. There's some stuff, or, or, or not. I shouldn't say impaired, but <laughs> rather they're not going to get the earnings that they're projected to get from them, correct? Or the commissions, and there's certain things, uh, certain amount of monies that have been due, which they may not get paid, or probably are not going to get paid. Almost certainly not going to get paid. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. Almost certainly they're not going to get paid. Irrespective of that, I think when the the announcement, this is recently, re relatively recently, yep. you know, they have basically said that our, you know, this. B2B business is still growing at 50% mm. in the 10 weeks past the announcement. So, so it's going to hurt, but they're still growing. They're still 50%. That's all right. That's that's nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> so, so I don't know. There's, there's a lot of pessimism around Webjet is what I can see. I, is it too much focus on – I'm, I'm leading, leading the witness here because I own the shares, but is it, is it too much focus on the short term? Is that the market simply just not – Appreciating the long-term opportunity, over-focusing on the short-term risk. Yeah, so I mean, if cost? I have to, yeah. So if I have to put a reason, which is always hard to do, like yeah. you know, it could be that the market is thinking, well, you know, growth in travel is related to growth in the economies. If the economies overall, like you know, in the in Europe and so on, are actually not growing that fast, and the economies, you know, we are cutting interest rates because economies are not growing fast. Mm -hmm. All of those things have an impact on travel, but you know what that means is. Oftentimes, these can also be an opportunity for the the nimble players, the smart players, to actually <laughs> take market share, right? Yeah, fair. Um, and and a company like Webjet could do so. But there's a little, there's a lot of pessimism around it. But mm -hmm. at what a P of twenty or something like that. Again, I'm making that up on the top of my head. Last time I checked, so somewhere around that, um, earnings growth of thirty percent. Let's say when the earnings growth drops to like fifteen percent, that still seems like a pretty reasonable bet. I, I mean, I really like. The, the price point and yeah so is it is it all clear sailing no but nothing is clear sailing this is this is a pretty uh, in my books it's it's a pretty good company that is selling for a good price yep um, now Mike won't do better than that other than to say we don't really care about short-term weakness in the share price per se we like almost entirely ignore that stuff. Uh, other than to the extent it maybe ask, makes us look, as we just have, and said, well, what's going on and what do we think the value is? Um, so we're not led by the market from that perspective, but we do just make sure we understand what the market's thinking and maybe why why uh, things don't look as bright as maybe they did in the past to the market, but our long-term thesis largely unchanged. Any short-term issues from Thomas Cook are probably overdone by the market, I think it's fair to say, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I, I, as I said, you know, again, I got really worked up after the earnings. So <laughs> You're still coming I, down. I, I'm still coming down. But yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a good company. It's it's a, it's it's a it's it's a growth company available at actually a good price. So yeah, I, I think it's it's a good one. Mate, the next question we had was from Samuel. Now Samuel told us we were the epitome of self fun, self directed financial education, if I remember correctly, which was a lovely way to start. And so this time he starts with, "Hey lads, podcasts okay, I guess." 
Now I did I did chip him about that, and he said it was just had to balance that out. So I guess that's I guess that's fair for now. Well, Samuel, we'll let you through on your last on your last uh, ebullient uh, commentary uh, recommendation. Just just make sure you don't get too far off track. Just make sure the next one's a, another positive one, please. Um, he says just had a question about ETFs. Do you think it's important to include an ETF that covers small cap stocks? I asked because I was thinking of doing something like, and he mentions three particular Vanguard funds, a global fund, Australian fund, and another one, to cover international, Australia, and emerging. There you go. The other one's emerging stocks. But do you think it's worth having some exposure to small caps specifically? He's got a second question, which I'll hold for a second. Doc, so ETFs, exchange-traded funds, Mm. they provide easy, diverse, low-cost access to a whole market or a subset of a market. In this case, Samuel's got Australian, global developed, and effectively global emerging. So that's pretty much the entire world in in three ETFs, which we're big fans of. Should he, though, be specifically trying to add some sort of small cap exposure? Well, (laughs) this is a hard one to answer again, because... As as someone who runs a small cap uh, <laughs> newsletter, what do I say? Um, you know, here's the thing, right? No pressure, mate. But your job's on the line. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so okay. It the small caps have the opportunity of providing high returns. Yes. Right. They come with higher risk, mm-hmm. and and that's the flip side. I would not do small caps. I mean, I think the small caps is probably not a good place to use an ETF largely because, you know, your small cap ETFs typically will have several thousand companies. Effectively, yeah. uh, it gets really watered down and it's hard. I mean, small caps, I think I would suggest that you look at individual companies and buy them. Yep. And, and you know, there should be like a subset of um, your portfolio. And if you've got these ETFs and then you're building a subset, should you have it or not is really an individual question. It depends on the type of investor you are, your tolerance for volatility, you know, your stage of life and, and so on and so forth. Um, I invest a lot in smaller companies and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm okay with that volatility. Should you or shouldn't you is like, you know, it's basically like, should I buy a large cap? Yeah. Um, you know, again, I would not tell anyone to do anything that they don't feel comfortable doing, right? You have to first feel comfortable Investing in small cap, realizing that they're in the upsides and the balance that with the things that come with it, like volatilities, for example, are going to be yep. there. There's going to be, you know, higher chances of losing more funds um, versus with, you know, like a blue chip company, for example. So um, I can't really specifically answer that. Mm. Um, that's- You're our resident small cap high growth guru, so I'm going to defer to you on the individual uh, stock selection question. Uh, Sam, the other thing I, I would probably add is that um, to some degree, the small caps, by their very nature, are very hard for an ETF to own in decent sizes because, you know, if you think about a, a small cap company, it's $100 million worth of market cap, for example. It's very, very hard for a for a, a Vanguard or someone similar to own meaningful chunks of that without kind of – it's just, just very hard to kind of access those stocks. They don't trade all that often. There's normally a big gap between the, the, the asking price and the offer price. Um, so it's it's kind of it's, it's a bit hard for them to own meaningful amounts of it. So they tend not to. Transaction costs are also higher for the same reasons. Um, I, I would it, here's my thing: if we're going to buy an ETF, you're buying for you know market wide diversification to get roughly the average market return, and that's you're going to get that with an ETF. Individual small cap stocks aren't going to, in and of themselves, as a separate sector, owned in proportion, which is what an index fund would do. If you have uh, you think about the ASX, right? The ASX 200 and the All Lords. They're effectively the same index. They go roughly together. One might slide up from the other, depending on what's going on. But overall, the the, the next level from the 200 to the outdoor lords lords about 300 companies. It's probably like, I want to say 2 or 3%, maybe a little bit more, but not much, of the ASX 200. All, all the market weight is in the top. So if you're going to own it in proportion, 
you'd, you'd kind of the investment would be reasonably, in fact, very small and probably not worth owning. And by the time they get to decent sized companies, and you can pick them up then. So, I reckon if you if you if you're an ETF investor, you just don't need access to small caps. Now that being said, we think that stock picking is worth doing, and so if you're going to do that, buy Doc's newsletter and uh, and and you know, get a chance to buy some of those small cap stocks. But I would say buy small caps absolutely. I just don't know whether if you if you're an ETF investor. I don't know that small caps are necessarily worth the, the time, cost, and hassle. Yeah. Now, Sam asked a second question about Michael Burry. Now, for those who have seen the movie The Big Short, Michael Burry is the somewhat eccentric character, uh, drummer, um, who, who uh, in, the, in the movie, if you remember it, um, who took a big, big bet against the housing market and was wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong until he was finally and substantially right, spectacularly right, and then closed his fund because the stress of running it was just way too much. It's one of those things where even when you're right, you don't get to be popular. Barry has come out recently, Doc, and said that ETFs are an asset bubble or similar words. He's concerned that to some degree, the fact that ETFs are passive, that that may lead to market distortions and maybe there's too much money in those ETFs. Now, <laughs> in the past, it's not been ingratitude to disagree with Michael Burry. I'm going to outright disagree with him. There is absolutely no reason I'm aware of, and he may well know more than me, no reason I'm aware of why ETFs should either add to or subtract from any sort of market volatility or market performance. If you're literally tracking the index, the index moves as the way index, the index moves. There's no reason if they're, if they're reasonably and appropriately priced, why in, a, in the fullness of time, there's always going to be short-term volatility. There's no reason in the, in the fullness of time why an ETF should behave any differently to the index itself. And if that's true and the index itself is going to give you roughly average market returns, I don't see what there is to be scared of. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll just say that, you know, I'm not sure either. You know, uh, again, I I don't pay attention to, there are a lot of people with a lot of opinions and, you know, I have a small list of people. Uh, <laughs> that <laughs> Come I, on, you have a big list of people. Well, there's a small list of people that I think, I think that here's the problem, right? Uh, somebody could be famous for making one call. Yep. Does that mean that I need to listen to them? Because they made that one famous call, maybe I do, maybe I don't. Right. But, 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 yeah. Like so, so I, I mean, Michael Burry is not one of those people that I actually have actively. You know, what is he saying? What is he thinking? I don't actually pay attention to that. I mean, right. you know, to my detriment, maybe. But you know, I figure that there are so many. Everybody has an opinion. Yeah. Everybody's on social media. Even I am on social media. And uh, I, even I'm on social media. Uh, yeah, I can, and I have like <laughs> lots of opinion, right? So, 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 so I just look at myself and say, well, you know, I have an opinion. I just woke up and I just decided to tweet something. Well, you know, <laughs> is it worth my, is it, you know, I, I'm belittling myself. But I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like, you know, it, no, we sure. all got little small amounts of time that we have to apportion. And I, I have a preference to listen to what thinkers are saying. Yeah. And when I say thinkers, I mean people who think deep, who actually have, um, you know, innovative contributions that they're making. And mm -hmm. I, li I like to listen to what they're saying instead of, you know, what Michael Burry is saying about, I don't know. And with no disrespect to Michael Burry, but I, you know, I just don't follow him. So Mate, and, and I have no clue. <laughs> you're a scientist by background too. And I think this is important. You know, the economics is called the dismal science for, for lots of good reasons, including this one. Um, there, there is no scientific study around the world that would simply say, hey, this guy was right once. Let's yeah, let, let's yeah. do what he thinks. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's big enough issues with sample sizes of tens or hundreds. Yeah. Um, when someone makes one call and gets it right, then hey, he was right, and maybe that means he might be right again. But there's there's simply you know economics journalism. I think we we all tend to fall for that idea of like so and so said something, and so and so was right. Or frankly, it's just a big outlandish claim. And Steve Keen um, is a, is a lovely bloke and 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 super super well meaning and believes deeply in his views. 
but he's been wrong for about 15 years and we're still talking still talking about it um at some point you know it's it's, it's reasonable to kind of put that aside and say well yeah, he might, you know, there's there's no, no other part of science, and economics isn't, doesn't claim to be science. Certainly scientists don't believe economics is science. But there's no part of science that would in, in, even go anywhere near that sort of performance say, therefore, we should t- pay any more than average random chance to that view. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I think the main thing is that if people have made that one call, and it's mostly with negative calls, right, Yeah. which is really hard, right? You know, there are people who are famous for, oh, I've, you know, that person predicted that Enron is going to go bankrupt, <laughs> and therefore I should listen to it. But if you look at that person's fund, then you might find something else that's happening. You know, right, maybe right. It's a, so, I mean, I do listen to people who have long track records of super successful, for example, investing, mm. right? And and, and and that can be useful because you can learn something there, yep. right? There too, I mean, there's the question like, you know, past record is not a guarantee of future success, you right? I mean, you, you got to be uh, skeptical and, and, and think, but at least it's a good, to me, a long record of something that proves mm-hmm. potential, has the potential of proving something is mm-hmm. a good starting point. Um, but, you know, if you've got one successful call for something that made you famous, I mean, I think everybody should remember that RBS made this really famous <laughs> call, which is, you know, go go find it on your favorite search engine, Bing. Um, <laughs> uh, so Speaking on, of on, single samples, go. Yeah, so on, on Bing.com, you can search for RBS January oh. 2016, yes. sell everything. Sell everything. So now, if, that was a good call. Well, well, if this call was true, right? <laughs> If this call actually passed, right? Yes. Then, yes. Yes. Then what would happen? That every time, you know, we'd only we'll all be subscribed to the RBS tweet <laughs> channel. <laughs> well, mate, in, in a parallel universe, Michael Burry is a nobody, and RBS are, are the geniuses who correctly called the 2016 crash. Or, or yeah, exactly. And, and and I mean, no disrespect. I mean, those people who wrote that report definitely believed what yep. they wrote, right? Yep. I mean, I'm not saying that they didn't believe it. <laughs> you, don't, you don't put that sort of stuff out unless you believe it. Yeah, like, I mean, you have to believe it, right? And, you know, like, so, sometimes the problem is what you believe mm. may not come to pass because the work just world just doesn't work that way. Correct. Right. Mate, we've got a question from Nick. Nick says, hi, guys. Your podcast continues to surprise, and the addition of the mega mailbox was a masterstroke. That's very kind, Nick, and the check's in the mail. Question. I'm with the online stockbroker Self Wealth. Try saying that five times quickly. Is it just this one that basically ignores reinvested dividends in their return calculations? None of the trade history, no notification, no running total return, DRP amounts excluded from the holding total gain, just visible in the end of year reporting. Is this a strange thing not to highlight for an online broker, or am I unique in this observation? Uh, Is the answer quick, Nick? Um, You are not alone. (laughs) The brokers don't do any of that sort of stuff. They don't tend to track portfolio level returns at all. They tend to track, track basically position returns. In fact, most of them you actually put in your own cost base. Now, they simply don't choose to, try to, or bother giving you that sort of result. They basically say, hey, what did you buy for it? What did you buy it for? Here's the current price. That's all they'll basically give you as a, as a return. Yeah, like, I mean, the the, the best I've seen from uh, brokers is, is basically you get a year-to-date return. I mean, that includes yeah. everything. Um, but even cash-in, cash-out gets a bit messy. Like, it's, yeah, they just don't have, try and do yeah, that. Yeah, see, if you have if you have cash-in, cash-out, then they might try to. I mean, it becomes messy. Yeah, so it's, a broker's job is not to actually provide you uh, <laughs> investment return calculations if you want to do it. You, it's actually relatively straightforward to do yep. it in using a spreadsheet. You know, you can just, if you have, if you just know when cash came in, and when cash went out, yep. and you know that today the value today, you can just use a spreadsheet again. Is it the XIRR calculation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Use the XIRR. I would begrudgingly tell people to use that on Google Spreadsheet. It's easy <laughs> to do it. 
I've um, never heard you say that in your entire life, Doc. Uh, uh, begrudgingly, because it's very I'm simple to do it. But yeah, you, but you could, but you could also do it on Excel if you want to do it. You can do it on Numbers if you want to do it. <laughs> there we go. Um, <laughs> but you know, yeah. on Google Spreadsheet, you you can you can actually very easily do it. It's yeah. very straightforward, very easy, and that basically just gives you money weighted. Um, uh, annual returns, basically. In fact, Nick, I would go one step further and I would say you probably should use Doc's approach. Um, position by position is useful, but it kind of at some level isn't overly beneficial at some point. Now, you kind of have to track something. Some of our services, we do track position by position because there's no other real way to do it. On our portfolio services, though, while we do show the kind of return on a, on a stock level, you know, just because we kind of, again, want to be transparent, the total portfolio number is much, much, much more useful. And so whether it's a DRP where the dividend goes to, to buy back something else, different stock or a different, you know, use, you know, different use for the cash, if the money goes in, comes out, um, I, would, I would encourage all our listeners, yes, absolutely understand what your companies are doing because that helps you learn some lessons about what to do more of or do less of. Um, but the, the total portfolio level is so much more useful for calculating performance because that gives you a real number. Whether Woolies paid a dividend that I bought Coles shares with or Coles paid a dividend that I bought Woolies shares with or you know, vice versa, you're much, much better off knowing how your capital allocation is going in total rather than tracking the position by position. It might not be a, a great answer or a, or a very attractive answer, uh, but it's the answer I think is the best one. Yeah. Last question, mate, from Rowan. Rowan says, G'day, Scott. Loyal listener here in Budapest, Hungary. We've got two hungry listeners. John hmm. is another regular correspondent from Hungary, so maybe you blokes should uh, get together, have a beer, and uh, put your foolish jester caps on and have a, have a, have a bit of fun. Uh, he says, My favorite podcast for three years, as it keeps me in tune with Aussie companies back home and is a small pill for homesickness. Mate, just quietly, if you think this is what Australia's about, you've really got to get out more. Uh, maybe too much time in Budapest has, uh, has taught you that, uh, well, you know, don't expect it to be exactly like this podcast when you get back. He says, I would like to vote for two shows a week as the mailbag is killer. I'm going to assume that means in a good way. Is that fair? Well, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> You're often covering companies in Oz and US, but rarely do you mention European companies. Curious if you have any investments in the Europe, or Europe or the UK, and if any are on your watch list, same question for Doc. Um, I'll move on in a second. That's the first question, mate. I have no European companies at all in my portfolio, basically for a couple of reasons, but largely because there's only a, a limited amount of investable universe time and effort I can spend researching. And my general preference is to look at Australia and the US and US listed companies. But there's an important one here because most US companies, in fact, these days earn more of their revenues outside the US than inside. So to some degree, from my mind, we're not getting every company on the US exchanges, but the US companies are a pretty good proxy for global access. There are some really, really great companies that simply aren't on the US exchange, and I know I'm missing out on those. Um, I simply don't have enough research time to devote to multiple exchanges, and so I've kind of made a deal with myself that if Australia is 2% of the world's markets and the US is 60%, well, in two exchanges, that's not a bad starting place. How about you? Yeah, I think something very similar. Um, the w one of the things is I tend to focus on tech businesses. So if if I have to look at overseas companies, mm -hmm. then most of those tech businesses, interesting tech businesses that I find, um, majority happen to be listed in the U.S. They might not all be U.S. companies, right? Mm -hmm. You know, but there are companies that. Um, Basically, you know, they could be even French companies or they could be other European companies and right. they just happen to be listed in the U.S. or so their primary listing actually is in the U.S., yep, right? Yep. Or they have secondary listing. So either way, you can normally access 
most if you want to through yeah. a US exchange. So, so that's that. And yeah, there, yeah. So and, and as you said, that most companies have international revenues. And if they've got international mm-hmm. revenue, that international revenue basically co- covers Europe. So for that reason, we don't, I don't look specifically at. Yeah. Um, and then if there's like, you know, again, everybody has limited, you know, if I've got limited investable cash and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm looking at having like you know, 30, 40 odd companies, it, it just, it's just something that doesn't, you know, come in my radar. That, that said, if yep. somebody pointed me that this is a very <laughs> yeah, awesome exactly. European company that, yep. you know, I should invest in, then I'd have a look. And, you know, if I liked it, I would invest. It says, there's nothing that says I wouldn't invest in it, but... Uh, it's, it's just it's, it's just one of those things that I've not looked at. Much better answer than mine, mate. Thank you. Rowan goes on to say, when it comes to cheap ways to transfer money in different currencies, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned any of the new fintechs, such as TransferWise, that offer your borderless account and debit card. Now, I'm going to assume Rowan doesn't work for, <laughs> for TransferWise or, or is not a shareholder undeclared. So, mm. Rowan, feel free to tell us and, and disclose if you are, but we'll assume you're not. He says, this way you can move money between currencies six times cheaper and way faster than banks. It also gives you transfers between currencies within seconds. Very handy when shopping online and beating cheeky exchange rates. It's an interesting story how this company started up, which I can relate to being an expat. So for those out there, if you want to have a look at TransferWise, we're not recommending it directly. We haven't looked into it ourselves in any significant detail. But if you are interested and that's something that's um, on your radar, we thought we'd just pass it on from Rowan. Thank you, mate, for sharing that. And then he ends with, and that brings me to my second question. Can you share any companies you would be excited to see on the list, sorry, list on the market with an IPO and you won't hesitate to get in as soon as they do? Thanks and keep up the good work, Rowan. All right, mate. So are there any companies, private companies here or overseas, you're just itching to jump on as soon as they list? So there are a lot of great companies, right? <laughs> but but I, I would, okay, so... The the most important thing here would be the price, right? So if mm-hmm. I if I am, for example, itching to buy yeah, right. something and I think it's a great price, I'm sure there'll be other people itching to buy something and it'll just be bid up. So yeah. so that's the part of the problem. Yeah, like you know, if I could, like for example, own a, a piece of SpaceX, I might consider it. I uh-huh. you know, Airbnb, I yeah. might consider it. These are interesting businesses. But again, without looking at what you know, before the IPO, they'd have to release a document, a prospectus that's going to basically release their financials, <laughs> and then we will learn a lot more than what we learn from the press. So I think, yeah, I think when a, when a company is private, we you know we, we probably just hear the good side unless they have, you know, <laughs> the, the bad stories leaking out. Well, that's true, right? Because all you see is kind of the, you see the consumer-facing or the business-facing kind of experience with the company. Yeah. And that can be wonderful. It doesn't necessarily make it a, a quality business. And, and certainly, um, without wanting to cast aspersions, the likes of Uber have been caught short. WeWork itself Look like a wonderful business, or at least for some people, until the CEO had to step down, and there were some some shenanigans going on there that were kind of brought to light. There's a whole lot of stuff that maybe separates a good consumer experience yeah. or a good business experience from a great company or even then a great investment. And the difference between those two, of course, is the price. Yeah. The one thing I'll add is actually IPOs are interesting when the company is actually flying under the radar. So it's often, okay. it's, it's you know, that's it, that's interesting because there are not too many people interested in it. Is you that know, code if you're not going to tell us the ones you're, you're thinking of because well, you don't well, want us to know? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I, I mean, we've recommended a couple of times, you know, like, um, you know, we recommended Elmo soon after it, it IPO'd, right? I mean, again, it was an under the radar company The at HR time. company, not the Sesame Street character, not, right? Yeah, the HR. HR, okay. The cool. HR, um, just, just to be clear, <laughs> the HR software company out out here in uh, on the ASX. Yes, and, and and you know like it was under the radar. People, you know, not many people followed it. Mm. You know, had good growth rates, good opportunities, had an interesting business strategy. So so those sort of things 
are interesting. I think mm. on the other side, like as I said, I would, if I could own a piece of Airbnb, I might be, but I don't know what price it is and I don't really yeah. know what the financials look like. So, other than that, though. <laughs> other than that, though, I mean, it sounds like, you know, hey, I own a piece of Airbnb. This is an awesome yeah. thing that everybody is interested in. It's, it's, it sounds good from that point of view. Fair to say the companies we're interested in, but not necessarily investments we would make sight unseen. And we don't want people to look at that and say, great, as soon as at least I'm going to buy some because Scott and Doc said it was worth buying, we're saying there are some great companies out there, or interesting companies. And given the right circumstances and the right information, we may well be interested. I think that's fair to say. I um, A couple for me, mate, Steam is an interesting business that it's basically a private business that allows you to, on your computer, aggregate and buy gaming, uh, so computer games effectively. Uh, really nice subscription business, um, high usage. That's an interesting one for me. I'd, I'd be pretty keen to have a look at that. Um, others on the, that are private, nothing else in mind that I kind of would love to jump on. I'm a later post-IPO buyer than you probably are, mate. I, I generally, as a, as a broad rule, rules are always meant to be broken, but as a broad rule, would want to have at least 12 months of, of public market experience before I buy. Um, that's not for everybody, but for me, that's a, a decent rule of thumb I try and use, just because, to the point of those shenanigans, there is, you know, we know a little bit about some stuff that's private and not well-known. When something lists, we know a little bit more about it, and then 12 months later on the markets, we get to see two reporting periods, um, a bit more kind of... Just, just kind of you know, business as usual reporting that tells us a little bit more. If I've been burnt investing in the past and a couple of times, it's been buying post IPO, where frankly the post IPO performance and the pre IPO performance was very good, but fell off a cliff really quickly. And I probably had I waited a little bit longer, might have saved myself some grief. Now, on the flip side, there's also opportunities where that is worth doing. So I'm not suggesting it's always a bad thing, but for me, I, I don't, I wouldn't be rushing into anything at IPO. I don't, I don't, I can't imagine buying anything at all actually, as it lists, unless I was super excited about it or for some reason. Love the idea. I'd almost always wait 12 months before buying. Any more for you, mate? No. Mate, we've gone well over time. I think so. <laughs> I, I, I think this is it. Is anyone still listening? <laughs> no. <laughs> if, if you are still listening, let us know. Uh, Doc, you mentioned social before, so I'm going to give us a quick plug before we go because we love hearing from our listeners and, and from what we know, our listeners love chatting with us. So if you want to hit us up, get ready for the roll call. We'll start with Instagram. Because I normally start the other way around. <laughs> if you're on Instagram, send us an Insta question. Like our post, send us a... Don't send us a food pic. Please don't send us a food photo. Uh, and I don't want us any any kind of... Send some, so, send some so. coffee photos to Scott. No, don't send us coffee photos. Uh, you can, <laughs> well, <laughs> the, uh, even better. Send him dog photos. <laughs> he loves dogs. <laughs> the Fool account is at the Motley Fool AU on Instagram. I'm at TMF Scott P. That's Instagram if you're there. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you can hit Doc up at, at Anirban Mahanti. You can hit me up at, at TMF Scott P. Again, The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. If you're on the Twitters, let us know. And if you're on Facebook, unlike Doc, who, if he does tweet, tends to tweet about negative Facebook stories. If you're on Facebook, is that true? <laughs> Definitely true. If you're on Facebook at The Motley Fool Australia or at Scott Phillips Money, uh, you can get us on all of the socials. We're not on um, We, Snap, Tinder Chat or anything because we're just not that cool. Uh, but everything else, all the mainstream channels we're on, and uh, get us up. If you need to email us, if you aren't a social person, I understand, info at fool.com.au is the best way to get to us, and those questions will make their way to our dulcet ears and your, well, you'll hear our dulcet tones, not dulcet ears. You get the idea. Man, I'm probably done. That wraps us up. Before we go, don't forget you can and should subscribe to this podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. It is Triple M Motley Full Money. Check it out. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, leave us a review, tell your friends because, hey, the more the merrier. And you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox. It's our favourite bit. By going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. 
That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.